0: The wonderful thing about prayer and fasting is that we leave a world of not being able to do anything and then we enter God's realm where anything is possible. But should we pray to ask God to thwart or punish a person in a situation? Do we have the spiritual authority to pray what are called Psalms of Judgment? The Jerusalem Channel is made with the support of you, our viewers. Thank you for watching. Shalom, I'm Christine Dark. I received an email from a friend in America who wrote, My pastor has called for a curse on people who were involved in our recent disputed election. Is it wrong to pray such a curse, she asked, adding that this issue had caused a major rift in her church, although she said many in the congregation were supporting the pastor's instructions. And I answered, and I say this to anybody, be very careful who you are following. We can pray to God for Him To remove the wicked from a position, but to be personally involved in curses goes against the whole spirit and tenor of the New Testament. Orthodox rabbis do engage in ritual cursing from time to time, but we're taught by both Jesus and the Apostle Paul in the New Testament to pray for our enemies and not to curse. Now, there is such a thing as anathema that the Apostle Paul spoke of. But that word concerns excommunication of a professing believer within the church. In other words, turning church sinners over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that their souls can be saved. Another friend responding to heightened tensions in America wrote to me this week. And I want to remind those who profess faith in Messiah that we are called to bless our enemies, not hate them we bring a reproach upon our true master, Messiah Yeshua, Jesus, when we become like those who are so full of blind, irrational hatred. Those who are embracing malice and rancor don't yet realize that hatred has become their master. A great many are wholly addicted to hatred and are entirely enslaved by it. Now, in Ezekiel twenty-two thirty. God said, I sought for someone who might rebuild the wall of righteousness that guards the land. God said, I searched for someone to stand in the gap in the wall so that I would not have to destroy the land, but I found no one. However, in our generation, the Lord has found many intercessors to stand in the gap in the protective walls of our nations, and I hope that you're one. As guardians in prayer of our nations, the Lord has given us a great spiritual armory. And one of the weapons in prayer is to believe God's promises and to decree God's word. And one of those decrees is Psalm 146, verse 9, where it says, The Lord frustrates the ways of the wicked. The ways of the wicked he turns upside down. In other words, he makes the plans of the wicked topsy-turvy. However, believers don't pray what are known as the imprecatory psalms, as David did. Those are the psalms that call down judgment on people because Jesus instructed us to bless those who persecute us. But it is legitimate, as we pray for our leaders, to pray for the removal of the wicked. It's certainly lawful to pray to our Father in heaven in the name of Jesus that all willful workers of iniquity and evil should be exposed and swiftly removed from positions of power, from positions of prominence and influence. We pray for the Lord to stir up the mighty men and women of prayer and to open the eyes of those being deceived and to position people who stand for life in the high places of government, in the courts, in media, in all spheres of influence. But as we pray for our leaders, we also pray that God will reveal our own hearts and any works of darkness within us. Another friend wrote to me that this revelation of our own sin and shortcomings is called, in Greek tragedy, the moment of self-recognition. Without seeing our own sins, we are unable to repent and to experience godly sorrow for our personal and national sins. And we can decree the words of Jesus in Luke eight seventeen: There is nothing hidden that will not be disclosed and nothing concealed that will not be revealed and brought to light. Amen. My friend Malcolm Hedding, the former director of the International Christian Embassy Jerusalem, wrote a brilliant article recently in which he stated, and I agree, that our repentance meeting should have far less speaking and more praying. The time has come for us to prostrate ourselves before the God of heaven and plead with him for mercy, forgiveness, and deliverance. We need what the Bible describes as godly sorrow that will bring a fresh outpouring of God's spirit. I want to emphasize again the weapon of adding fasting to our petitions and intercessions. Derek Prince of Blessed Memory, one of our mentors in Jerusalem, emphasized that there are many answers that we can receive from God through prayer, but some answers only come when we add fasting to our prayers. That's just a harsh reality that we have to take on board. Fasting moves strongholds, but if we're not diligent, we can become backslidden in our fasting. The first century Christians fasted on Wednesdays to remember the betrayal of Judas and on Fridays to humbly remember our Lord's passion. And Jesus said that when evil is present, both prayer and fasting are required. He said in Matthew seventeen twenty-one. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Throughout our lifetime, we'll always be engaged in genuine spiritual warfare because Ephesians 6.12 declares that we don't wrestle against human beings, flesh and blood, but our wrestling is against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. But remember, the Lord frustrates the plans of the wicked. When on our knees, we fight the good fight of faith and refuse to succumb to despair. And on our knees, we run the race of faith before us with endurance, looking up for the time of our deliverance is near. The Lord has promised never to leave us nor forsake us as we face a corrupt and perverse generation. Now, one of my mentors of blessed memory also Reinhard Bonke used to say that we need Holy Spirit imagination to navigate our times. We have to be as wise as a serpent and innocent and gentle as a dove, to find creative ways to share the gospel and to share truth in troublesome times, and to keep ourselves from spiritual exhaustion. In the Torah in Exodus 6:9, Moses spoke to the children of Israel about the good news that they were going to leave Egypt. But they couldn't listen to him due to their anguish of spirit and due to the cruel ravages of their bondage. But they were exhausted in spirit. They were paralyzed in a state of hopelessness. And I pray that doesn't describe you today. But it does describe a lot of unbelieving believers. So how did the Israelites become downhearted? Had they forgotten the promise that God gave to Abraham in Genesis 15, in verses 12 to 14? God had promised Abraham, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country, not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated. But God says, I will punish the nation that they will serve, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. Well, this past week I discovered a certain minrash, that's an apocryphal teaching in Judaism, citing the book of Exodus. According to the Hebrew for Christians website, the Jewish sages taught that one of the reasons for the Israelites' shortness of faith was that they had miscalculated the duration of their 400-year ordeal. And therefore, they began to lose hope because they didn't pay attention to God's timing. This Midrash, as I said, is apocryphal, but it's also instructive. It teaches that members of the tribe of Ephraim tried to escape from Egypt about 30 years before the time of the redemption under Moses, and they had all been killed by the Philistines. Therefore, many of the Israelites began to believe that they would remain perpetual slaves. That story is found in Shemot Rabbah, a Midrash on the book of Exodus. So let's not be so beat down and overcome by circumstances in our individual lives and miscalculate timing so that we can no longer receive the message of the Holy Spirit, God forbid. Now, we have so much work to do. We have all of the things going on, the COVID virus, increasing censorship, and other end time hindrances. We need Holy Spirit imagination and empowerment of a fresh infilling of the Spirit to go forward. As I said earlier, since Jesus commanded us to pray for enemies and to bless those who persecute us, there are a number of verses within the Psalms in the Hebrew Bible that many Christians wonder if it's lawful to pray. These Psalms are called imprecatory Psalms, And that's a big theological word that just basically means to call down judgments, calamities, or curses upon one's enemy or upon those whom we perceive to be God's enemies. For example, Psalm 69 in verse 24 cries out to God, pour out your indignation on them and let your burning anger overtake them. A spiritual conflict in witchcraft increase. This, of course, is a topic we must face. And Judaism can take a different approach from Christianity. For example, you might find this shocking, but when Israeli archeologists started to excavate the tombs of the Maccabees, the ancient high priest of Judea, an ultra-Orthodox rabbi cursed the archeologists. That's because ultra-Orthodox Jews strongly believe that the dead must not be disturbed nor their graves desecrated. For this reason, they often demonstrate against excavations and in extreme cases, the rabbis employ elaborate curses. They claim that their ritual cursing has proved effective in the past. They have also been known to pronounce ritual curses against politicians. But if you think this is strange, there's an incident In the New Testament, in Acts 23, 12, where the Jewish enemies of the Apostle Paul formed a conspiracy and put themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. But thankfully, he escaped from their clutches. Although many of the Psalms in the Bible contain imprecations against the ungodly, in the Psalter, the book of Psalms, There are generally seven types of psalms, and let's go over those quickly. First of all, there are the psalms of lamentations, and these are prayers for God's deliverance in moments of despair. Secondly are the thanksgiving psalms, and these are praises to God for His gracious acts in majesty. The third are the enthronement psalms describing God's sovereign rule. A fourth category are the lovely Pilgrim songs sung by worshipers as they travel up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Lord's festivals. The pilgrim psalms have become especially meaningful to me because by the grace of God it's been so easy in my lifetime for many believers to make a blessed pilgrimage to Israel. And these pilgrim psalms, such as one of my favorites, Psalm 84, just come alive for us. Number five category, the royal psalms. These portray the reign of the earthly king as well as the heavenly king messiah of Israel. Number six, the wisdom psalms. These, of course, instruct the worshiper in the ways of the Lord's wisdom and righteousness. But the seventh category is controversial. These are the so-called imprecatory psalms, the psalms that invoke God's wrath and judgment against his enemies. Over the years, I've learned a lot from the Jewish people, and they do pray all the psalms. And by the way, this is so positive. I was deeply touched by a photo I saw on social media that was posted by a rabbi friend. He related that a Jerusalem resident had been in a bakery when he noticed that he was standing behind Natan Sharansky, the famous human rights activist and author who, as a former refusenik, spent nine years in Soviet prisons. Of course, now he lives in Israel. But the person standing in the bakery plucked up courage to speak to Sharansky and mentioned how he had been inspired to read about Sharansky and how the dissident had kept a tiny little book of Tehillim, the Psalms, at all times, even when he struggled with the Soviet authorities to keep it in his possession. Well, I love this. Sharansky smiled and reached into his shirt pocket, And pulled out that same tiny palm-sized and tattered little book of Talim, the Psalms. And the bystander asked Sharansky, do you carry that wherever you go? He didn't even pause. He replied, actually, this book carries me. Amen. I wonder, do the Psalms carry you? They carry me. I can't go a day without reading some portion of the Psalms. And I was speaking to a brother in Jerusalem who said that he had lost all strength due to the COVID crisis because he had completely lost his business, which had relied on tourism. And I encouraged him to read the Psalms because they do supply great strength on a daily basis. But what about these troublesome, imprecatory Psalms that express desire for vengeance? After all, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. He said that in his Sermon on the Mount. Furthermore, Paul wrote in Romans 12, 14, Bless them who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Although the main Psalms calling for God's wrath against enemies are Psalm 69 and Psalm 109, In Hebrew, the Psalms literally mean praises, not curses. And the Psalter is considered part of both Hebrew and Christian scripture, serving as the ancient hymn book. Now, the New Testament contains passages in which Jesus began to denounce the cities where many of his miracles had been performed, but the people had refused to repent so in Matthew 11:21, 21, he decried them. He said, Woe unto you, Chorazim! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. And listen to Jesus in Matthew 23, 13. Woe to you, teachers of the law! You Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let others enter. And in Matthew 26, at his last Seder, Jesus' last supper, he said concerning Judas, his betrayer, Woe, cursed is that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better if he had never been born. Furthermore, listen to the Apostle Paul's very strong words. In 1 Corinthians 16, 22, he said, If any man does not love the Lord Jesus, the Messiah, let him be anathema, which means let him be accursed. Interesting, Paul didn't say if any man hates the Lord Jesus, let him be accursed. No, he said if anyone does not love the Lord, let him be anathema, accursed. The commentaries explain that the word in this verse used for love signifies not mere affectionate regard, but personal devotion. And then Paul immediately adds as an exclamation, Maranatha, meaning our Lord come or the Lord is at hand. The certainty of the moment when the Lord may come is the most urgent thought with which we are to remind believers, Paul said, to be devoted to the Lord. So Paul often sounds like a fiery rabbi in a don't forget he was a rabbi that was his background and there's another powerful statement by paul in galatians chapter 1 and verses 8 to 9 but though we are an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you let him be accursed and for emphasis paul reiterated so i say again if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that which you have received let him be accursed. Well, that's the equivalent of the Hebrew form of excommunication, a ban mentioned in the Torah and in Joshua 6, 17. So Paul was confrontational. He, he was a true shepherd of souls, unlike a lot of toast believers in our generation. And in 2 Timothy 4, 14, Paul recorded that a scoundrel named Alexander, a coppersmith, had done him much evil. And Paul apparently didn't have a troubled conscience when he said, The Lord reward him according to his works. Another verse in the New Testament in the book of Revelation boldly calls down judgment against the wicked. It's Revelation 6:10, where the martyrs under the altar cry with a loud voice, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you not judge and avenge our blood? on them that dwell on the earth. Remember, this is the New Testament, not the Hebrew Bible. The cry to be avenged is the exact opposite of our Lord when he prayed over his executioners, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. So whether or not people really are acting in ignorance or whether they are acting as God's hardened, implacable foes requires discernment. But to keep things balanced, Bible scholars widely agree that various judgment passages in the Bible are tempered within the context of hope or promised mercy. Never forget that the overall intent of the whole Bible is never to condemn people, but to provoke sinners to return to God. For example, there are two verses 1 Corinthians 5.5 and 1 Timothy 1.20, where Paul spoke of turning sinners in the church over to Satan. Why? For the destruction of their flesh, so that their spirits would be saved on the day of the Lord. The purpose of his discipline was to teach errant churchgoers to learn not to blaspheme. Though harsh, Paul was merciful in his purpose to try to save souls from eternal perdition. Now the word accursed, anathema in the Greek, is derived from two Greek words signifying to set apart. And it's the equivalent to the Hebrew word "cherim," which denotes something devoted to destruction for the sake of God's honor, as was the spoil from the conquest Of Jericho harem harem is the better pronunciation so while Paul instructed us in Romans 12 14 not to curse others he didn't prohibit asking God to deal with obstinate sinners the bottom line is we have to stay balanced by asking the Lord to save lost souls while also imploring him to punish evil because evil must not be permitted to exist unpunished indefinitely. Now, what we have in the imprecatory Psalms are cries for the justice of God to go forth for the vindication of His name. These expressions are not vindictive. They're not calling for personal retaliation nor personal vengeance. For example, in the Psalms, we hear David calling for justice because he desired for God's name to be honored. On the other hand, in 2 Samuel chapter 16, we have the incident of a man named Shimei, who came out to curse David. And what was David's response? He said, to paraphrase, let him curse me. Perhaps I deserve it. Perhaps the Lord told him to do this. But when a person's conscience is clear, he knows that curses are harmless. One of my favorite verses is, proverbs 26 2 which declares that an undeserved curse will not come to rest that verse says that these curses will be like birds that fly by but never land i believe the overarching scripture for our focus today is deuteronomy 32 25 where god says vengeance is mine says the lord i will repay in due time the foot of the evil will slip the day of their calamity is near it hastens upon them so that has to be our attitude that vengeance belongs to the Lord no matter how vile or no matter how violent or how threatening we must pray for enemies the worst terrorists the worst foul-mouthed reprobate who vexes our souls our attitude towards them should be an attitude of mercy and if our hearts are cold We should plead with the Lord, admitting to him, Lord, concerning this person, my heart is cold. Please stir up my heart to pray for this offending person. And every time we pray, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Do you know that we're actually praying a judgment on God's enemies? When Jesus comes again, there will be plenty of judgment for God's enemies. Now, before signing off today, I want to invite you to our website, exploits.tv, which brings you news on current and end-time events relating to the church and to the nation of Israel. The reason why our ministry is called Exploits is it's based upon Daniel 11.32, which declares the people who know their God will be strong, not weak, and will accomplish exploits. Amen. Let's Do the works of the Lord in the remaining time before his imminent return. Feel free to share your thoughts with me on social media. And don't forget to download our free Jerusalem Channel mobile app for your phones or tablets. Today I want to leave you with the positive and powerful prayer of the early church during a time of persecution. As recorded in the book of Acts chapter 4 in verse 29, and I'm going to proclaim it as a prayer. Let's receive these powerful words. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings and grant unto your servants that with all boldness, we may speak your word while you stretch forth your hand to heal and that signs and wonders will be performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And the following verse goes on to say, And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Amen. Let that be us. Until next time, I'm Christine Darg, always contending for the faith and praying earnestly for the peace of Jerusalem. The grace of the Lord be with you. Maranatha, even so, come quickly. Lord Jesus, Shalom.